failed to love? Or is it a little bit like leftover pizza? A little bit stale? A little bit difficult to chew on? This is Course Correction Radio. There is very little love left in the world today. Don't believe me? Just turn on the evening news. And Jesus said these things would happen. That we would see nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine, pestilences, earthquakes in random places. Does this sound like 2020 yet? And that this is the beginning of sorrows. Now that term beginning of sorrows in the Greek literally means the beginning of the birth pains. But hopefully as we go throughout tonight's itinerary, you will see what I mean by that. From there, we see that affliction will be brought on Christians. That they will die for the sake of the name of Jesus. And that many shall be offended shall hate one another and betray one another. And many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And because iniquity doth abound, the love of many shall wax cold. All right, let's take a look at Matthew 24 real quick, starting in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came forth to him for to shew him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be one left here, one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the world. And Jesus answered and said unto them. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name. Saying I am Christ. And shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars. And rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. I want to share a quote with you 
The Olivet Discourse, delivered shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, is the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. It is significant because it came from Jesus himself immediately after he was rejected by his own people and because it provides the master outline of end-time events. That quote is from Dr. Tim LaHaye on page 35 of Charting the End Times, a visual guide to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, I brought that quote up because I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. LaHaye about the importance of Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse as a whole. However, that is where our agreement on the subject of end times eschatology ceases. Now, according to a lot of end times prophecy scholars in the modern era, they believe that the book of Revelation after chapter 4 no longer contains information that has to do directly with the church. I would like to challenge this, and I will show you why. Remember what I said about the beginning of the birth pains? Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering, and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the soil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So what I'd like to do during the rest of this first segment is present my case for why Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6 are parallels, one being a very literal description of what is happening, and one being a very symbological description. And in order to really see that Revelation chapter 6 is symbolic, which much, much of the book of Revelation is, and I don't think that is any secret, and I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence on that. But let's go to Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came 
four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass, and the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. And the grizzled go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might go to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And through the information given in verse 5 of Zechariah chapter 6, we can see that John is very much seeing things through a spiritual lens. This is very important for us to grasp because scripture will always interpret scripture. And if we do not let this happen, our eschatology will always be skewed. So, before we really can tackle this, there are some other issues we have to address, such as, how can we be sure the, four, the first horse is those, like, the deceivers of Matthew 24? Because I truly believe that the first horse is the spirit of Antichrist riding forth. How can we know this? Number one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1. This book was written by the same apostle that wrote a gospel and three epistles that make it a goal to defend the divinity of Jesus Christ. Number three, in his first epistle, John said that any spirit who denied that Jesus came in the flesh was the spirit of Antichrist, and this is the important part, which was already at work. And number four, in Revelation 19, Jesus does appear on a white horse, but there are some notable differences, such as in Revelation 6, one crown was given unto him. Revelation 19, many crowns he already had. Revelation 6, he had a bow. Revelation 19, a sword came out of his mouth. Revelation 6, he went forth conquering and to conquer. And in Revelation 19, in righteousness judges and makes war. In Revelation 6, his bow has no quiver of arrows. And I would also like to point out in Revelation 19, Jesus does not conquer, but he smites. Now, there are those such as the wonderful Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, whom I absolutely adore, he says that the white horse, the first horseman of the apocalypse, is the gospel going forth. Now, I'm going to give some reasons why I don't believe that that is an accurate statement. And the bottom line is it just does not fit the context 
of the chapter. We have the following three horses presented in a negative fashion. The red horse brings war in such force that there is no peace on the earth. The black horse brings such hunger that a measure of wheat costs a penny. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us in our modern times, but let's take a look at the Greek. That word measure is koinix, and it is a measure of less than a quart. And that word for penny is denarius. It literally means 10 pence. And according to Matthew 20, verse 2, is a day's wages for a common laborer. So we have less than a quart of wheat cost a day's wages for the common laborer. That's a lot of hunger. Then we have the pale horse, ridden by death with hell behind. And I don't think there's any reason to elaborate on why that is negative. Does that make sense? We have two white horses that are very similar at first, but as you can see, the similarities disappear. Just as Satan, anytime he can, tries to pervert and twist what is God's, I believe that's what we have here, the spirit of Antichrist riding out at first, looking very similar to Jesus. But as you dig deeper, the similarities go away quick. Now with that in mind, let's compare Matthew 24 with Revelation 6. We have in Matthew 24, 5, falsely anointed deceivers. Because when Jesus says, many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, that word Christ, it means anointed. So we have people coming in Jesus' name saying, I am anointed, and they shall deceive many. I can't help but think of the new apostolic reformation right off the top of my head. People like Bill Johnson at Bethel in Redding, California. Or people like Todd Bentley who use their power given unto them that make these huge, huge claims of raising people from the dead and all of this as a way to get at women and seduce them because that is very much what Todd Bentley does. And I don't mean that in a slanderous or libelous way, but the record has spoken for itself, sad to say, and we should pray for that man. Now we see that the white force the white excuse me the white horse goes forth conquering and to conquer and we see that in 1 John 4 the apostle John said the spirit of antichrist was already riding forth Now next we see in chapter 24 6 through verse 7a that first part we have wars and rumors of wars we see the red horse takes peace from the earth in Revelation 6.4. Next we have famine in 24.7b. And in Revelation 6, the black horse has a food shortage. Next we see pestilence and earthquakes. Which will bring death on a massive scale. And we see that the pale horse... Death is the rider, and hell 
follows behind, and they are given a dominion over a fourth of the earth. Now, why is this significant? Like I said, the common teaching brought from dispensational pre-tribulationism is that the seals are a part of the great tribulation. The basis for this is where Paul tells us we are not appointed unto wrath, which we will cover more later. However, as you can see, the passages of Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 match up rather nicely. So we must ask, what will the church be around to face? Well, according to Matthew 24, 9, the followers of Jesus will be around to be delivered up to be afflicted. Now, the Greek word there is flipsis, and it is a pressure or a tribulation. And that word is later used in 24, 21 and verse 29 to refer to the great tribulation. Verses 10 through 12, many shall be offended. The Greek word there is skandalizo. And it literally means to fall away. And it can be synonymous with apostasia in the sense of it would be the causation of the apostasy, which we will elaborate on later. They will betray one another. That is paradidomi. That means to give or to turn over, hand over from, to deliver over with a sense of close personal involvement. And honestly, really that sounds like COVID snitches. Like that's, that's what comes to mind is these people that are so willing to just turn on anybody because of this fear mongering that is going on. They will hate one another. The Greek word there is miseo. It means to detest or to love someone or something less than someone or something else. An example of this would be in Luke 14:26, where Jesus says, Unless one hate his father or mother, you know the passage I'm talking about. From there, many false prophets will arise. Now that word in the Greek is pseudoprophetes. And it is someone who claims to have revelation from God, but is false. They specialize in the art of misimpression, like how they are commissioned by God to change the world with their message, but when in fact they operate by self and for self so that they must be exposed for what they are and are not. And that is from Help's Word Studies, which is an amazing tool that you can find on Bible Hub, which does not sponsor me in any way. I just want to say that. I just think that their, their, their website is absolutely amazing. And I've got their app on my phone. It's, I love it. Now, they will also deceive many. That word is planeo. It means to go astray, to get off course, to deviate from the correct path, roaming into error, wandering, or to be misled. That is also from Helps Word Studies. By the way, fun fact, the word planeo is where we get our word planet. I just thought that was cool. Now, from here, because iniquity, and that literally means the condition of one without law, either because ignorant of it or because violating it, in the context of Matthew 24, it is actually the contempt and violation of law iniquity or wickedness and that's there's greek lexicon and because this iniquity shall abound the love that word is agape affection goodwill 
love, or benevolence, also from theirs, shall wax cold. And it literally means it will fade away completely. Now, last week, as you are aware, we talked of the importance of love. It fulfills the law. Now, we're going to take a quick break because this is a perfect segue into our second segment. We're going to go to Thessalonians chapter 2, match it up with Matthew 24, and we're going to find out because there are people out there that teach that the word apostasia means physical departure. We're going to look at it in the context of Matthew 24 and see if that holds water or if it is in fact like it has been traditionally translated for years as it is a falling away from the faith. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Now, before the break, we discussed the fact that because iniquity would abound in the last days, the love of many would wax cold. And honestly, that brings us perfectly into the next segment, which is the Thessalonian Dilemma. Now, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul the Apostle discusses several things, ending with a discussion of the resurrection of the righteous. Now, that's 1 Thessalonians 4. 13 through 18. Now what we're going to do is we're going to actually read that real quick to get a better understanding of what's going on here. So I'm going to pull out my Bible real quick because I actually don't have it on a slide and I apologize about that. But my fingers were honestly starting to cramp when I was typing this. So give me just a second and we'll go there and read it. All right, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we 
shall so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, we'll go ahead and read 5 too, just so we can start breaking it down. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Now we have, after Paul discusses the coming of the Lord, he then goes on to talk about the times and seasons. Now, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to talk about that. That is the Hebrew word, Moedim. It is a plural of Moed. It is a specifically a festival or a divine appointment, an appointed time. Uh, you first see it in Genesis where it says he made the sun and moon for times and for seasons. Um, so, Paul is referring to something very specific here. We're not going to get into that today. It will be hinted at. But it, we're not going to get into it just for time. He then goes on to talk of how the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, we are going to break that down. But believers are not in darkness that that day should overtake us as a thief. For we are creatures of the light. Children of the day, not of the darkness or the night. And he then goes on to say, let us not sleep, but watch and be sober. So we must ask, what are we watching for? The coming of Christ? Or are we watching for the signs of his coming? You may ask, is there a difference? Aren't they a package deal? And while I would say they should be, Thanks to the doctrine of imminency, which is never mentioned in the Bible, it severs the two. And I'll go even further to say that this isn't new. Rather, this is something that the Thessalonians fell victim to, just as many of the modern evangelical churches have. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he had no need to write to them of the times and seasons, for they knew that the day, the day of the Lord would return, that he would return like a thief in the night. But what does this mean? The phrase is a Hebraic idiom that can capture that can appear to refer to two things. Number one, a Jewish bridegroom. Number two, the high priest of the tabernacle or temple. But which one fits the context here? And which one lines up better with material mentioned in scripture? Is it possible it could be both? Well, let's take a look at each one of them and find out. Now, the bridegroom, this is the first tradition. 
The tradition states that the Jewish man would steal the bride away when she did not expect it. Then there would be a feast given by the father of the groom. Now, I will admit that this sounds really good if you are discussing chapters such as Matthew 25 with the parable of the ten virgins. However, this is not the custom necessarily mentioned. And in my own research, I will say this. When I looked and I saw what the scholars have to say about when this tradition of Jewish weddings came in to be, it said that it was sometime in the first century. I could not find a specific date. Therefore, we cannot assume that this was set in stone at the time of Christ. We cannot assume otherwise either, which is why we're taking a look at both of them. Now, the second is the high priest. The high priest at night would walk about and examine the temple guards to see if they were not asleep on their watch. If they were asleep, he would take a coal from the brazen altar and fling it on their linen garment, which is highly flammable, and they would shed this and run off naked. Now, some accounts I found of this said that the high priest would take a torch and light their garment on fire. But either way, somebody's clothes were getting lit on fire, and they would run away naked. Now, keep that in mind. That's going to actually come into play with the first later. So... With the bridegroom stance, here's the issue I have. The only article I could find on this subject derived all of its biblical interpretations from a process called Ramez. For those unfamiliar with Ramez, it is the second layer of Jewish interpretation called parties. Now, what parties is, is it is a acronym that stands for Peshat Ramez um, I don't remember what the D is, but then there's uh, Sod, and what it does is it goes deeper each time. Uh, the Peshat being the plain meaning, the literal meaning of the text. Then you go to Remez. Remez is the metaphorical meaning, or the like. it's like a hidden metaphor that's like just under the surface. Then you go to the next one, and of course, you go all the way down until you get to Sod, which is the hidden or mystic meaning and you know you may say what is the issue with this the issue is that it is first laid out in its acronistic form in the jewish mystical book known as the zohar which was in uh put together in the 13th century now there are many who would challenge that this was put together in that time however i have found no evidence whatsoever to support their claims on this. Now, Remez's interpretation, like I said, it looks beyond the literal meaning of the scripture and focuses on the hidden or underlying meaning. Now, and by rule, this is not supposed to contradict the plain meaning, but I will say as a former practitioner of parties, I have found it does nothing to bring clarity. It actually muddles biblical interpretation. So what is the issue with Jewish interpretation? 
Well, first of all, Moses de Leon, that is the man credited officially with putting the Zohar together. He was a man that rejected Jesus as his Messiah. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with Jewish anything, but as a matter of fact, I've got friends that are Jewish. They're amazing people. However, we must look at the underlying tradition. Is it a godly tradition, or is it something made by people who rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah? Now, if that is the case, and they did reject Jesus as their Messiah, we have an issue, because the Bible tells us that if somebody denies that Jesus is God in the flesh, this is 1 John chapter 4, then that is the spirit of Antichrist. Therefore, things such as this tradition that are written by these men, by default, it was written in the spirit of Antichrist, and a Christian has no business messing with this stuff. The second problem is it contradicts Scripture which says that the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, will teach us all things. That's John 14, 26. Now, that is not to say that all exegesis, or that is biblical interpretation, is bad. For one must rightly divide the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2, 15. Now, how can we tell which one of these better lines up with Scripture? Well, there are three rules to sound biblical doctrine. The first is context. The second is context. And the third is context. We will look at the usage of this idiom and see whether this is something believers should or want to take part of. All right, we're going to go to Matthew 24, 42 through 46. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, always be ready. For in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh, who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meet in due season blessed is that servant whom his lord when he cometh shall find so doing luke chapter 12 37 through 40 blessed are those servants whom the lord when he cometh shall find watching verily i say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. If he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. 1 Thessalonians 5 1 through 10, which we just read. 
you know that the Lord cometh as a thief in the night, but you are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Are you starting to see the pattern here? Being caught by the thief in the night unaware. The the coming of a thief in the night period is not not a good thing thus far. Second Peter three nine through fourteen, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Revelation 3, 1-6 And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. They are ready to die. That which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore hast thou, hast, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch. I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess him before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation sixteen twelve through 16. This is the one I told you to remember about, about the garments. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, and the way of kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, 
I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now given the context of the verses we read, does this sound like a cute little wedding custom? Or does this sound like the punishment for an unfaithful servant? I personally, and look, I get that this is just me. This is an opinion warning right here. I see no connection here to the Jewish custom that as far as I am aware has no biblical basis but is rather a late Second Temple Jewish tradition. And I do want to point out, if I can, some biblical evidence for the high priest context here. And that is that in Hebrews, we know that we have such an high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and his name is Jesus Christ. We know, according to Peter in his epistle, that we are a royal priesthood. So, I would just suggest that, given the context of what is going on here, this is a temple guard. Now, who is the temple? We are the temple, the body of Jesus Christ. The church is the temple. Now, if we are guarding the temple, may I just throw this out here? Because this is a connection I'm just making as I am talking. If we are guarding the temple, we are not doing our job, but we are rather not being watchful. Now we know, and some verses we'll go into, I'm just going to go ahead and set this up. Keep this in mind for when we go through them. We're going to go through Second Thessalonians, where it talks of the man of sin sitting in the temple of God and declaring himself God. Now if the church is the temple, and we are the guardians of the temple, and we are not watching like we should then who is to blame for the man of sin sitting in there? Do you see why it is so important that a Christian should know what to watch for? Because if we don't, the connections we're going to make, hopefully you will see them, there will be a huge detriment on people's souls if teachers do not straighten up and start reading their Bible And stop listening to people that want to tickle their ears. And I'm sorry to get so (laughs) ranting on this, but this is something that if God had not pulled me out of the mainstream church when he had, I can honestly, I I, I really don't know where I would be today. But nevertheless, we'll move on. What should we do? about watching we must first search the scriptures for the right and proper signs of jesus return we can search for areas where these signs are mentioned and compare them with the teachings of jesus to ensure we do not wander into error and for that we can start where we have left off in this segment with the thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2, given the context of the letter, it seems that the Thessalonians had been duped into believing the day of the Lord, that is Christ's return, was at hand and were understandably concerned. This is what I was referring to. They had been duped as far as the doctrine of eminency goes. 
Paul nevertheless assures them that there are still things that must come to pass before Christ's return. Let's read it. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. Now we know that that is the harpazo that Paul talked about in his first letter. Keep that in mind. By our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of Christ's return, where we're gathered unto him, shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, shewing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the work of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion and they that they should believe a lie that they might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness but we are bound to give thanks to god for you brethren beloved of the lord because god hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught, by, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word, and work. The signs here are a falling away. Chapter 2, verse 3. The man of sin revealed, the man of sin revealed, and he will exalt himself above God in the temple of God through something that is called the mystery of iniquity. That is chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. It is only after this mystery comes fully to fruition that the wicked one comes. The restrainer must be lifted for him to come as well. That's chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. What is... Now, we have to ask this, because I really think there's a lot of people that don't know what this mystery of iniquity is. Paul says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. But what is this mystery? 
and is there a way we can discern it from the Bible? Let's line up this linearly because we're going to do some compare and contrast, and I really do believe that we will see through Scripture what this mystery is. There, the mystery of iniquity leads to the falling away, which leads to the revelation of the man of sin. Pretty simple. Now, let's compare this to the signs given by Jesus in Matthew 24, the ones we started off the show with. Jesus said there would be a false anointed that would um, deceive many. He said that nation would rise against nation. Now, that word there is ethnos in the Greek. That's where we get our word ethnicity. So we have an ethnic group will rise against an ethnic group. This is explained, I believe, in the book of Isaiah when God said he will make Egyptian rise against Egyptian. So we have certain ethnicities will rise against ethnicities. I can only help but think of what is going on in America right now with a broken heart because Jesus warned us that this would happen. Now we also have that kingdom against kingdom. Now that would be your modern nations against nations. Actual countries going up against one another. Kingdom powers. Then comes tribulation of the saints. Many shall be offended to the point of apostasy. They shall despise one another and false prophets will arise. Now look at, let's look at those signs given by Paul again. There will be a mystery of iniquity. There will be a falling away. The restrainer will be lifted and the man of sin will be revealed. Now, as far as I can tell, this also parallels the abomination of desolation given in Matthew 24 as well. Now, the reason I bring this up is you have the false anointed, the nation rising against nation, the tribulation of the saints, and many shall be offended to the point of apostasy. The first three, those are your mystery of iniquity. And it's explained right there in the text. You have, remember what we talked about last week. Love fulfills the law. Jesus said there were two commandments that all the law and the prophets hang off of. And that is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then you have, love your neighbor as yourself. That, I believe, is Leviticus 19.17. Now, you can take all of those, and the Ten Commandments can be split up between those two. Then you can take all the other commandments given in the five books of Moses, and they can be split up between those two as well. Because all, the entirety of the biblical Torah can be summed up in love. Now, when you take that away, remember, iniquity means without law or despising the law. So, if love fulfills the law, then that should go to show that lawlessness is manifest and its truest point without love, which would bring the false anointed. It would bring the nation against nation. It will bring the tribulation of the saints because there is nobody that loveless people hate more than Jesus Christ who sums up absolute, perfect, godly love. 
because of this, the false, now see the false anointed, they're going to lead those astray. Go back to the parable of the sower, right? You had some that were taken away by the devil and his minions. Some that were choked out because their roots weren't established in good soil. Some that are choked out by the riches of this world. And then you have those in good soil. Now the ones choked out by the riches of this world. That sound like the prosperity gospel to anybody else? Why do I bring this up? Because all of these things, that is your mystery of iniquity. Look around at what's going on. You have the new apostolic reformation with their anointed apostles that focus all of their gospel on these false signs and false wonders and not one of them teaches true biblical repentance. Many will come saying, I am Christ. I am anointed and deceived many. Brothers and sisters, we are in that time right now. Now because the love and the repentance that leads to perfect love that is found only in Jesus Christ has left the way. We have nation rising against nation as we speak. Go turn on the news. I don't care whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever you prefer. Go turn them all on and see what's going on in the United States right now. We are in this mystery of iniquity and it is getting worse every day. Now, many shall be offended to the point of apostasy. That was that word. That offended is skandalizo. And it leads to the apostasia, the falling away that we just read about in 2 Thessalonians. Now, many shall despise one another. Feeds further into this mystery of iniquity. And false prophets will arise that will make way for their ultimate master, the man of sin. Is everything starting to come together now? And I do want to throw in a side note. There is a teaching now. And it seems to have especially become really popular in 2020. And it propagates that for the past 460 years, our Bibles have been translating the word apostasia wrong. The premise says the word means departure in a physical sense, like people will physically leave. And this is based on the fact that Bibles such as the Tyndale Bible, the Coverdale Bible, and the 1560 Geneva all translate the word departure, that word, the apostasy, they translate it as departure. And while I cannot go into detail on why this is false, we have a full video, about 20 minutes, very in-depth look at this on our Course Correction Radio YouTube channel. You can also go find it on my personal Facebook page. I have shared it up there, and I will be sharing it on the Course Correction Radio Facebook page. So, while I don't have time to explain that now, I do want to explain why this line of thinking is dangerous and even warned about in passages like the ones we have already read. Now, see, we go back and we say that that day of the Lord the day of his coming and our gathering together unto him that Paul says, these teachers propagate that this word departure, they say this is a physical departure and that the rapture is happening right there. And that's proof that we'll be out of here before the man of sin gets revealed. And you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, why are you saying this? What does this have to do with anything right now? Well, let's go back because I really want you to think about this hard. We're looking for the proper signs, right? That's very important. And hopefully... 
by the end of this episode, which I know is going a little long, and I'm sorry, we, you will see why it is important for us to look at the right and proper signs. They teach that this is that physical rapture. There's just a few problems with that. The word apostasia does not mean a physical departure. Now, where did they get this? The word is based off of a verb, aphistemi, which does mean to physically leave. The problem is that's a verb. Apostasia is a noun. You cannot, in the Greek language, translate a noun to its verb form. You must only translate it in the context it talks about. So let's take a look at that context real quick. Let me go back up here and find this because this is important. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor word, born by letter. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day. What day? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. You know, they told him that the the day of Christ was at hand. The day. The context here is the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering unto him shall not come unless there be a physical departure first. So Jesus can't come until he comes to take us away. Now, I really want to ask you, think. Does that make any logical sense in the context of this? Or, given everything we've just matched up, would this be better suited to say the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering unto him shall not happen unless there be a falling away from the faith first? And I get it. It doesn't say the from the faith. But the thing about it is you can't fall away from something unless you have it. There's going to be a massive exodus from the faith. Look at what's going on in the mainstream church. All these poor, poor souls that no longer believe in God. And some of you, I don't know if you're listening, but if you are, some of you are propagating that you can't measure a falling away. How dare you? And I don't mean to seem rude. And I'm only thinking of a small group of people that are on my Facebook page. But we see here, and it is evident, that this is very much a falling away. And why is this dangerous? Because I told you I would tell you why this is dangerous. And I won't beat around the bush because I know we're going late. Why is this dangerous? Because when you say things like this, You are going against the teachings of our Lord who said that many would be offended. That being, if you look up that Greek word, I am not making this up. It literally means to be offended in the sense of falling away. And the word can actually be translated falling away. It can be synonymous with the word apostasia. When you teach that this doesn't mean that, you're teaching against our Lord. I want you to know how serious that is. This, that is, at this point, that is very much a salvation issue. You say, well, how can you say something so bold? What evidence do you have? Second John chapter, well, there's only one chapter, but verses 9 through 11. He that hath not, he that transgresseth and abideth not 
in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Now, what is that doctrine? That word doctrine is, it literally means the teachings of Christ. Now, one of the things Christ taught about was, guess what? When he would come back in the signs of his coming. And he said that many would fall away first. How about that? And then, you know what he even went farther to say? If you go and read the whole chapter of Matthew 24, he said, after the tribulation of those days, will you see the sign of the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds? I'm not trying to spit in anybody's face. I promise I'm not. But what I do need people to realize is that we all need to match up our beliefs with the Bible, which a lot of people do. I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate that anybody doesn't that may be listening, but we need to take it one step further. We need to take those scriptures and match them up to what our Lord says. Because he is the ultimate revelation of the Father, and he is the final authority on any biblical interpretation. And that is not a debate. I will not debate anybody on that. It's Jesus first, or Jesus not at all. Those are the two choices. Now, we're running a little bit late, so the reason I named this No Love in the End is exactly for that reason. If we keep focusing on the wrong signs of Jesus' return, such as the fact that he could return at any time. And that comes from a verse where he says, Behold, I come quickly. That word quickly in the Greek, go look it up. Get yourself the Bible Hub app because it is, it's amazing and it's going to help you bring so much clarity to the word. It is truly a gift from the Holy Spirit. That word means that once Jesus does come, that nothing will impede it. But I want to go back and focus on the reason for this verse. In the first place, this episode, the verse, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. But the gospel will be preached in all the four corners of the earth. And then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, we have to focus on the real signs of Jesus coming because it is up to us in these last days to make sure we are spreading the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified, and for people to repent and turn from their sins so that the end can come. And why do we want the end to come? Because there will be an end to death and destruction. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. And we need, we read it in in. Second Peter chapter 3, he is willing that none should perish. And that is where you and I come in, brothers and sisters. We must contend for the faith that was brought to the saints and for nothing else. We must put the doctrine of Christ first and foremost and preach the gospel. That is is the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations and teach them whatsoever I have commanded you. I think that's all the time we have for now. We are already over an hour in, and like I said, I am. I'm sorry we went long, but I have such a burden on my heart. And for the friends I do have that have fallen prey to this false teaching in 2 Thessalonians, 
I really am praying for you. It breaks my heart to see when brothers and sisters have stumbled into error and do not know it. Please don't think I am trying to fight you or belittle you, but I am trying to warn you of the destructive path you are heading down and the destructive path you can lead others down when you are teaching them to look for signs that will not come. My friends, my family, until next time, be safe. Pray for one another. Love one another. And most importantly, put Christ first. Take care. Thank you.